we're in a, we're in a unique section of text. It, it's just, if you haven't been with us and you're jumping in, even me starting when it's talking about let a widow be enrolled, it might sound a bit strange. Paul's in this chapter 5 where he's giving general instructions to the church to a young pastor named Timothy in Ephesus. And we've already seen the last few weeks. He's given instructions on leadership. He's given instructions on threats to the church. And here in chapter 5, he gives general instructions to the life and ministries of the church. And he's specifically talking in the last few passages about shepherding care, congregational care, visiting shut-ins and widows, and by implication to orphans and single moms and dads, caring for those. And here he gets into the, some of the procedures for that. Like, how should we do that? How do we evaluate if somebody is worthy of that? Not that they don't have need, but that they're ones we are responsible to care for. And he gives some characteristics of what, what we could describe as those who are truly widows or worthy widows. And, and, and the first thing I'd want to say, kind of summarizing verses 9 and 10, is this. Care for widows should not be casual but should reflect the holy priority of a local congregation. We need to have procedures and, and implement those in a way to make sure we are being faithful with God's people and God's resources. Listen to what Paul says in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. That's a fancy word. That's a technical word. Let them be those on the list for resources and care if... And then he gives some qualifications. He gives a bunch of qualifications that we'll look at in just a minute. These qualifications are simply this. There has to be some kind of quality control because there's limited aid. There are not unlimited resources. In fact, anybody who's been involved in any way in the life of a local church will know there are always more needs than there are resources. So how does a church go about knowing who are those who are in their congregation, who are in their family who need care, to whom they've been assigned? Paul gives some qualifications. Interesting, before I, before I discuss them, realize this. Church, you're receiving insight into what personal pastoral care looks like. Like you're sitting in the, in the equivalent of a, of a pastor-elder meeting with, with, a, with a personal crisis in someone's life where pastors and elders are determining what is our responsibility to these people? How can we care for them appropriately? What are, what's their responsibility? What are their family members' responsibility? How many resources should we allocate to this? Those are hard decisions. And we're getting a glimpse from a pastor like Paul of what those kind of decision-making processes look like. And here's what he says. First, he says, let them not be enrolled if, unless they're at least 60 years old, not less than 60 years of age. Now, that's an interesting criteria, but that, that, that they're unable, that, that they're unable to contribute. Now, throw this stat at you and think about this. The average lifespan of adults in the time of the first century was 30 to 35. So let's just throw out 35. So the average person lived to about 35 years. In fact, it didn't go into the mid-40s until the 1700s, sometime after the French Revolution, meaning for the majority of the last two millennia, most people didn't even make it to 50 years old. Now, that doesn't mean people didn't, because when you add in, and this is where statistics can be misleading, when you add in uh, the amount of 
of, of the loss of infants, newborns, children to disease, uh, to various other elements, it was much higher rate than it is today. In fact, arguably in the Roman Empire, so around this time, uh, one out of every three babies uh, did not make it to their first birthday, right? So that would clearly lower the average age. But in general, people just did not live as long as they do now. In fact, the, the increase in age over the last even few decades or a couple generations is remarkable. So somebody in their 60s is well advanced in years in the first century. I don't want to get in trouble with that this week. They're well advanced in life. Most people didn't live that long. So if somebody is at that age, they qualify. Like they fit that. They're, they're not in a situation or stage of life to be able to contribute. Here's another, other traits, that they've been the wife of one husband. Again, that isn't trying to exclude issues of divorce that are warranted or other things. That is just simply saying they are faithful to the covenant of marriage. Uh, verse 10, that they have a reputation for good works, that there's fruit of the Christian life, uh, that, that they've brought up children. Again, don't take that as Anybody who wrestled with infertility is disqualified. No, it means that they're faithful to family. And you can do that with 10 children, and you can do that as an auntie, as, as, a, as a sister-in-law, as, a, as just a general family member caring for children in numerous ways. So again, marriage, family, they reflect the virtues and traits of people who have symptoms of Christ in their life. They have shown hospitality. Again, don't just think the friendship to strangers, to the aliens, the foreigner, the people that they don't even know. They're, sh they're generous with their resources to those on the outside. But, but then it says this, they've washed the feet of the saints. So notice, by putting those two together, hospitality is assuming the outsider. Wash the feet of the saints is assuming the insider, saints. Some take washing the feet, especially from Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, as actually being a ceremony that Christians should do, where I, where I really believe to cut to the chase, that even Jesus' instructions in John 13 on foot washing are talking about a life of service in the church, a life of service to the saints. So look what they've done. They've understood family to their, to their husband, to the children, extended family. They, they're, they're generous in serving outsiders. They're generous in serving those on the inside in the church. And then it says this, they've cared for the afflicted, and they've devoted themselves to every good work. Paul is making sure that the people who God's church care for are those who care about God and his church. He's just making sure of that. Are these people we are assigned to care for? I mean, think of about your family. Like you have one or two or three or four children. Those children are assigned to you. And there's expectations you put on them as family members, how they should act. But you have a burden as your, as your children, as part of your family, to care for them. There's a whole lot of other kids that could use your help. There's a whole lot of other kids that you do give help to. But you would definitely make sure that your resources, your time, and your energy are focused on those who are in your family. That your children deserve that priority. And when you have extra, and there's always more need than you can give, you will extend your time and your resources to those outside your own children. So too, God's children deserve the resources of the church as its mother. Again, using an old reformer's language. They, with the, the church is the children of God, and the church serves as its mother. It is a sign to care for those children. There are many other people in the community and beyond that they can and should and will 
care for, but its children must be cared for. And its children have an expectation to be good, faithful members of the family. And this is how that is confirmed. In fact, you could even say, and let me give you this by application, that this list guides the church in several ways. Like there's several applications we can have. One might just simply be this. Don't squander the church's resources. Like Paul is letting the church know, be careful with your resources. Needs will always outnumber resources. Look at how he ends. We'll get there shortly, but look at the end of verse 16, where literally Paul says, let the, if a believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened. They have a lot of people they must care for. We should not squander the church's resources. Again, this is why verse 9 starts with that strange word, enrolled. Like, who qualifies? Who are the ones that we are supposed to care for? Let us be thorough, not casual, but procedural about that. Here's the second application. The church should be careful not to fall prey to the squeaky wheel syndrome. We don't just simply give to those who complain the most or cry out the loudest. We should have some set of criteria to determine to whom and how much and even when this care is given. Paul, in this text, is giving us insight into how those criteria get determined. Here's a third application. We should avoid nepotism. That is, we should make sure that regard for our own natural family or our friends do not take precedence over our spiritual family. Just because somebody is a buddy of a pastor or is friends with an elder does not mean that they merit the resources of the church more than somebody with whom there is no personal connection. That's why procedures must be set up and in place. Finally this, we should avoid, the church should avoid any malpractice rooted in a casual approach to a high and holy priority of congregational care. We must make sure we have policies. Brothers and sisters, I can just inform you in brief that we have a benevolence fund to which monthly, at the, fittingly, at, uh, when we participate in the Lord's table and communion, right, with, with a family meal, we add to our regular offering a time where you can give to the benevolence fund. And that fund is used specifically for this. And we have, we have an application, we have procedures, we have limitations. It is the, is the office of pastor elders, usually on the second of our two meetings a month where we wrestle with these cases, we determine to whom it should go and how much should be received. We have limitations so no one pastor or elder can make decisions larger than a certain amount to make sure that everything is double-checked and done effectively and with accountability. And that is because we are taking serious 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10. And you should be encouraged by that. You should also be aware that when you give money to the benevolence fund, it gets used for benevolence, nothing else. It is used to care for the body of Christ. And your brothers and sisters, even this week, two situations where I spoke to situations and, uh, and approved the amount that I was allowed to approve to give and care for people who are in need. Those are confidential between the elders and those individuals, but you can be certain that those people are blessed by the generosity of the church, and you can know for sure that those people meet these criteria that Paul is describing here. Isn't, isn't the church beautiful? 
And you, even if just by giving your 20 bucks every so often to the benevolence fund or whatever you give, you, you know you are, you are doing a high priority for the local church to care for those in need. The text ends in verses 11 through 16, and Paul has a slightly different instruction for younger widows. In fact, he says this, younger widows should take care to commit their lives to Christ in every way, meaning they may not qualify. It was quite common for a young widow, somebody even in her 20s, people got married as teenagers easily in the ancient world. Someone could be 24 years old and lose their husband in some kind of disease or, or injury at work or whatever the case may be. What would be their instruction? And he's got words for them. In fact, he doesn't want them to see that they're being idle, that the church then takes care of all their needs and they aren't being responsible. Notice the way that God expects us to be faithful and fruitful. And he speaks in verses 11 to 12 what seemed to be a situation that could be hard to understand. He says this, but refuse to enroll younger widows. There's that word enroll again. They don't qualify for this. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now that 11 and 12 might seem strange. It's, it seems like Paul's saying that they shouldn't have married, and yet in a few verses, verse 14, he'll encourage them to get married. I think there's something contextual happening in verse 11. It seems in Timothy's church, some widows had promised in their commitment to Christ not to marry, but for maybe because they were closer to 60, maybe because they were committing themselves to Christ, and then they kind of went away from that as they became lazy and unfruitful. In fact, I think the best way to translate the last word in verse 12 is not that they have abandoned their former faith, but the same Greek word for faith could just simply be promise. So when you hear the word faith, you and I are thinking of their commitment to Christ. But when you hear the word promise, you're thinking of some covenant that they made. And maybe in Timothy's church, it seems like there was some kind of life covenant we're going to commit. We're not, or we lost our husband. We're going to commit to serving the church in various ways. There's tons of needs we can do. But eventually, love struck up or desire to be married struck up, which is good, good desire, and they pursued that. And Paul's like, listen, don't be distracted with these little unbiblical prescribed covenants. In fact, verse 13, because what's happening is you're being idle. You're not being faithful. You're getting caught up in gossip and busybodies, doing what you should not be doing. So then verse 14, Paul says, this is what I would have you do. I would have you get married. You've lost your husband. But feel free to be married, to bear children, to manage your household, to give the adversary, i.e. Satan, no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after him. Verse 15. Paul wants to steer younger widows away from a superficial or dead Christianity to a life of purpose. In fact, verse 14 is insightful not only for thinking about how a widow might respond having lost her husband, but even it gives you an insight into how God views the purpose of a woman. Don't let your life get misaligned by half-truths self-centeredness, cultural redefinitions of what it means to be a woman of faith or a woman for Christ, or even Satan himself. Verse 14 describes how women have a unique 
ministerial role in marriage, with children and their families, and in ministry. And we've lost that. We've lost the ability for there to be women defined by Christ. We've lost, our culture pushes against those binaries. It, it fights against the biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. There, there's even, even Christians are debating that. They're pushing against those things. And to, to be fair, many times what, church, what the church has described as biblical manhood or biblical womanhood has just completely adopted cultural memes and phrases and practices. As if a biblical manhood is, is the tough Rambo or John Wayne and biblical womanhood is they're not supposed to think and they're supposed to be in servitude and they're not allowed to have the, the gifting that God gave them. That is not it. Those are just cultural adaptations too many times. But that's not to say that God didn't make us male and female. Genesis says it specifically. God made humanity male and female. That's a reality. He made them different in form and he made them different in many ways in function. And verse 14 gives us that insight. Christian sisters, be the woman God made you to be. Whether you're reading this as a widow who is determining what steps to take in responding to the, to the travesty and the, and the loss that you're facing, or just as a young woman, what does it mean to be a woman? How should I think about marriage or children or my home? And ultimately, what would God say to a young Christian widow or even to a woman today? I think verse 14 summarizes it. First, he'd say, be open to marriage. He's saying this specifically to the widow, but consider that for all women. For the widow, he would say, not necessarily immediately. There's a loss. There's a mourning. You may never get married again, and you're not sitting if you don't, but be open to it. God designed the institution of marriage for mutual care, for the raising of families, for support. That is a common grace gift. It will end one day. It is not essential, but it is wonderful. Be open to that. Another thing verse 14 says is be open to children. They are a gift from God. They're a natural extension of marriage. And it's not even just limited to those who have the blessing of fertility in adoption and foster care. Even things we're doing with, say, families in this church reflect the life of the home as raising up and caring for children. Those should just be instinctive virtues held high by those who understand how God made us, male and female, in his image, who are ministering servants of God's common grace in the world. The third is manage your households, or simply manage your home. Paul here isn't describing some kind of menial maintenance, but order, design, leadership. In fact, the same word described there in verse 14 describes in this place and several other texts how women are the leaders of the household. They are managing the home. They have, they have an organizational role, not some subservient where they're just cooking and cleaning as if, as if they're hired staff. They literally have a leadership role in the home that is joined then with that mutual relationship with the husband, but they are leading the home and the children lead. Home is your workplace. For too long, we've, we've separated that. 
uh, where do you work? As if the home isn't a place of work. In God's eyes, that is a place of work. None of this is to try to limit a woman from pursuing some kind of a career based upon the wisdom and the insight of God's leading. None of this is denying that a woman can work outside the home. Not at all. It's simply saying, let the home be a workplace too. And in wisdom and in the leading of God, suit what is giving him the most glory as you were called and designed to do. Lastly, Paul ends by warning of the enemy. And it's interesting that these kind of household, marriage, and children things in verses 15 and the end of 14 get connected to how Satan is trying to distort. In essence, Paul is saying, beware the enemy who would love to redefine your purpose. Satan loves to distort creation and remove creation from creator. Paul's connecting Satan's work to natural things. Satan would love to attack marriages, having children, the role of the family. If he can destroy those things, he can become victorious. The Christian must be aware of that, as Paul is saying. Brothers and sisters, the church has a holy priority of congregational care. This text displays the, the duty of every church to care for its widows. And ultimately, by extension, as we talked about last week, to care for all those in need, the orphan, the single mom, the single dad. There's, there's a lot of care we need to do. And this text teaches us how we can derive some principles for that, how we can not take it casually, but have some procedures to make sure we're using our resources wisely and evenly and fairly, that there's not malpractice or favoritism, that we are truly shepherding and caring for the flock. At the same time, it gives some insights not only to widows, but just to women in general, daughters of the Heavenly Father. So, so two takeaways that I would give to us is this. Church, we must care for our congregation with wisdom and with regulations and practices. That's something that we have implemented here at this church, and you need to know that. But feel free to ask me or another elder or staff member about that process and give generously in your service, in your finances, in your time, in your ministry and care. As I said last week, open your eyes and share your resources with your church family. That is not just a calling of, of, an, of an administrator or a pastor elder as much as it is. It is also the calling of the whole church body. But lastly, this text gives us insight into the high calling of what it means to be a Christian woman. And maybe in an age when, when, when gender distinctions are being erased or cultural pressures are trying to morph what it means, that we need to hear a bit from God and what it means to be a Christian woman, how the home can be involved in that, how children can be involved in that, how marriage can be involved in that, how the church needs humanity to be reflected as both male and female. I'm encouraged by Christ's words through this text and to know that all of that is done as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and even now, not just reigning over our church and this world, but interceding so that by his Spirit, the powerful truths of his word can penetrate into our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ministry of Scripture. And thank you that your Son has ascended to your right hand. We pray that as we try to be a faithful church that we would see with our eyes and serve with our hands and share 
of our resources to our brothers and sisters in this congregation in need, but from this text especially, our widows, our single moms and dads, even our orphans and kids in need. And Father, thank you that this text gives insight in what it means to be a woman for Christ. And I pray that the, that the, the qualities and characteristics would resonate with our women, young and old. And they would strive to be image bearers, female image bearers, who give glory to God in word and in deed. Encourage them, Father. Thank you for the gift you've given in male and female and for the family of God that cares for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.